you are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love and become more like Jesus. The Great Commission Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authorities in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is wonderful to see your smiling eyebrows and to open God's word together. Keep your Bibles open at Matthew 28. We'll camp out there for most of our time and flip around a little bit. But as we launch in, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we believe it's true. We pray, would you help us in our unbelief? Please speak to us now. Help us to believe it and obey it for the glory of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out the back of the middle of nowhere, there's this hill. Not a big hill, but it's big enough that by the time you get to the top, you're out of breath and you're wishing it was just a little bit smaller. And on this hill, out the back of the middle of nowhere, it's hot. They're kind of hot where the grass gets sharp under your feet and the buildings in the distance get, get a little bit hazy. And on this hill where it's hot, out the back of the middle of nowhere, stand 11 guys. Just 11. Not much to look at, no fame or fortune to speak of. They are working class people and they are weary. Because they've just had the biggest week of their lives. They've watched on as the leader. They left everything to follow. Was arrested. Tried beaten and crucified. And in the midst of their grief, now they're hearing his back. So they wait on this hill where it's hot out the back of the middle of nowhere. And nothing about this scene says we're about to witness a profound moment in history. I don't know what you picture when you picture the Great Commission, right? For me, it's always been a massive crowd until I actually read the text and realize we're just not told. It's 11 guys standing around. Jesus arrives and speaks words that will change the world. And I just assumed it was going to be a big event. There's probably some people looking on. We're not told, but... But these 11 guys, plus a few extras around the edge, are the fuse that lit the firework which became the church. 
and it's surprisingly little to look at. So what happened? What happened here? What could Jesus possibly have said to these 11 guys plus a few extras around the edge to mean that right now there's just over two and a half billion people who call themselves Christian? What happened to make this ground zero for the most significant movement in the history of the human race? Let's find out. We're going to look at this text in three sections. So I've got three headings because it's neat that way. The first one is the reality. The second one is the command. The third one is the promise. We'll start with the reality. Jesus appears to his disciples and drops this bombshell in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just think about that for a second. All authority belongs to him, all of it. That in all things, he decides what goes. He is the one calling the shots. That everything and everyone in heaven and on earth should submit to him in every area of their lives. That's a lot of authority, isn't it? In fact, it's all of it. And if we start to consider our personal relationship to authority or even our culture's relationship to authority, I reckon this claim of Jesus starts to make us a little bit nervous. Now, I've been learning lots about authority for the last few months because I'm engaged in a grueling turf war for authority with my three-year-old. <laughs> she is totally delightful and crazy cute, but every now and then we have a little disagreement about the best course of action. The conversation always goes like this. Edie, let's read a book and then we'll go to bed. No, let's read 10 books. No, we won't read 10. Let, let's, let's read two books. We do two books and then we'll go to bed. No, let's read 10 books. <laughs> All right, Edie, I'm tired and it's past your bedtime. I'll tell you what, we'll do three books and then we'll go to bed. No, 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 no. How about this? Let's read 68 books. <laughs> now I can tell at this point, this is not going the way I'd hoped. This negotiation is not going well. So, so I kind of pull rank and, and say, no, Edie, look, I'm sorry, it is late. And sometimes we just have to listen to Daddy. We're going to read three books and go to bed. And then Edie plays her trump card. She looks me in the eye and actually says these words. She says, no, that's not my plan. <laughs> that's not my plan. It doesn't matter if it's a good plan or a bad plan. It's not her plan and that's the issue. Now, it's mostly adorable at least when you hear about it from the outside. <laughs> but it is a little window into the human heart, isn't it? Th that our plans are just always a little bit better than other plans. This inclination we have to resist anything or anyone having too much authority over us. The, the, the many, many political protests throughout this pandemic that the most severe, significant ones in my lifetime that I can remember at least are full of passion. And they're all about a question of authority. But wherever you stand, left or right, the question is how much authority are we going to let someone else have over us? And that makes us passionate. 
Philosopher Charles Taylor says, the West has moved from a culture of authority to an age of authenticity. He reckons we used to be more okay with authority. We had kings and queens and that was fine. We were happy to submit to other people, but now we prefer not to live by any external authority structures. We want to live in line with our internal authentic selves. And so we say stuff like, you do you. Your truth is your truth. Don't let anyone else tell you who to say, what to say or who to be. Or to use another favorite phrase of my three-year-old, I want to do what I want to do. And I kind of get why we do that. I say we. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Because it's just easier that way. It's just way less frightening to call the shots than submit to the authority of someone else. Because when you submit to the authority of someone else, that makes you vulnerable. It's risky because people abuse power all the time. It's not hard to think of a leader or a politician, or a boss, or even a Christian minister who's misused authority, who's abused their position in a way that hurts people. Maybe they're motivated by selfish gain. Maybe they're motivated by power or reputation or money. Whatever it is, they're just not motivated by what's best for me. Only I'm motivated by that, right? And so surely I should be the only person I give any meaningful authority to. At least that's what our culture seems to think. And, and I want to suggest that clashes pretty violently with this claim of Jesus, doesn't it? Because he claims to have all the authority. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. He, And that means he makes a claim on you too. The the implication here is pretty clear. You should submit your life to Jesus. That's not negotiable as you read this text. Not just some of your life, all of your life should be under his authority. If you're a Christian, that's what you've signed up for. Every area of your life belongs to someone else. That's not always easy. I've got this friend, we'll call him Jack. He's a great guy. He's funny, he's generous, he has this massive heart for justice. He works in a non-for-profit. And, uh, and when I met Jack, he didn't have any faith of his own, but he was coming along to church with a friend. And so we ended up in the same small group together. And over time, he was just blown away by the gospel. The, the grace and forgiveness of Jesus just totally did a number on him. And so he starts calling himself a Christian. He starts serving at church. He, uh, he read the Bible in a year, twice in the same year. That's serious. And Jack's got these great questions, right? He's taking notes as he reads. He's hungry to learn. He's just flying in these first few months as a Christian. And then he meets a girl at a work conference out of state. She wasn't a Christian, and they started seeing each other. And she was very respectful of his faith. But I noticed as we met over time, his questions began to change. In particular, he started asking what the Bible said about sex before marriage. And so we spent hours, hours, looking at the Bible together, talking it through. 
then those questions became questions about whether the Bible was really reliable at all. Or whether we're really reading it correctly. Maybe it's more of an allegory. And then he starts reading all these really obscure blogs and liberal theologians who, who have very strange ways of viewing things. They just happen to gel with Jack's way of viewing the world. He left our church for another church that started talking about the stuff he was passionate about more. Now, I don't want to pass judgment on this guy. I, I honestly don't know where he's at these days, and I do pray for him that he's still trusting Jesus. But, but it struck me as we met for hours to work through this stuff. He was totally unwilling to accept any answers or positions that didn't agree with the ones that he already held. He just wasn't willing to change his mind about stuff. It was a painful reminder that even as someone who calls himself a Christian, it's possible to build a faith that fits around your own worldview, to make Jesus fit in with the stuff you already want and already think. It's possible, if you try hard enough and squint and tilt your head slightly to the side, to make Jesus' teachings submit to you and not the other way around. So it might be cute when my three-year-old says, that's not my plan, but I reckon the impulse is alive and well in all of us, even those of us who call ourselves Christians. There's a very wise man named Marcus who talked about that Tozer quote about 20 minutes ago, saying that Jesus wants to be our saviour and our Lord. Remember that? If I could follow up, how's that going? You notice there's two parts to that, right? That Jesus is saviour and he's Lord. And are you okay with both of those? Do you submit to Jesus as your Lord or are you prone to twist things just a little bit so that he starts to submit to you a little more? As Jesus makes a claim on your financial decisions, are you willing to submit to him or or do you look for a way to make him submit to you? As he makes a claim on your sexuality, are you submitting to Jesus or have you found a way to make him submit to you? As you think about your future, are you willing to admit that it's really not your future at all? doesn't belong to you. Is it really obvious that you submit to Jesus or, or does Jesus just kind of fit in as part of a bigger agenda? Because Jesus didn't just come to be your saviour. He came to be your Lord as well. But here's the thing. That's really, really good news. That's really good news. Submitting yourself to the authority of someone else is not easy, and it doesn't always work out, and it's difficult to trust unless it's the right kind of authority. Jesus is not just an authority that's not you. He's an authority that's for you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. 
another famous passage. We're doing all the greatest hits tonight. Philippians chapter 2. You notice in Philippians chapter 2, there's kind of a similar vibe to what we've seen here with this claim of authority for Jesus in, in Matthew 28, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We read something similar in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, everything, everything and everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth should submit to Jesus, should bow the knee to him. But did you notice why? If you scroll up just a few verses, the why is going to blow your mind. Check it out in verse 5. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Here is one who was equal with God already, which is, as we've seen, a whole lot of authority. But he didn't abuse that to his own ends. He used it for your sake. He humbled himself and became a servant of others. He emptied himself for the sake of someone else. This is the kind of king who wears a crown of thorns, whose coronation was crucifixion on a cross. Because he died, he is worthy of being your king. So you might ask, who died and made Jesus king? The answer is, Jesus did. And when he did, he died for you. For your sake. For your sins, for your forgiveness, for your freedom, for your good. Here we see someone who loves you more completely than you could ever love yourself. Why wouldn't you follow him? Why wouldn't you submit to him? You just do not, you cannot love yourself as completely as he has already loved you. So if you've ever doubted that the authority of Jesus was in your best interests, if you ever find yourself struggling to see that submitting to Jesus is actually good for you, remember the cross. And see, this kind of king who loves you more completely than you could ever love yourself. The claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me should make you nervous unless Jesus is the kind of king you can trust. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so submit or else. No, Jesus says things like, come to me, 
all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, he says. I have come so that you would have life and life to the full. Jesus says stuff like, I came not to be served, but to serve. He is a king who gave his life for us. So we can trust him. We can trust that his rule, his reign, his way of doing things is not self-serving and it's not corrupt. It's good. So what do we do in light of this claim that all authority belongs to Jesus and that might actually be a good thing? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That takes us to our second heading, the command. Make disciples. That's the command. Spoiler alert, it's just right there. Make disciples. In fact, if you want to get technical, it's the only command in this verse. A different translation might read, as you're kind of going, make disciples and baptizing them and teaching them everything I've taught you. So you'll notice that there's one main command there. It's make disciples. But, but he does fill that with meaning in a couple of other ways with the baptizing and the teaching. So if you were to unpack that, as someone is baptized, they declare their allegiance is to this God. Before it's to anyone else, they submit to him and they recognize and celebrate that God's allegiance is to them. As we go underneath the waters of baptism, we show we've died to sin and we come up again to show we've risen with Christ. It's a declaration that this person being baptized has believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that they're included in it. They've chosen their team and it's the family of God. That's like my favorite thing to witness, someone getting baptized, right? And so to get people there, we're going to need to tell them about Jesus. But it's clear also for Jesus that making disciples isn't a once-off event. It's not just let's get them dunked and then move on as quickly as possible, right? Because he fills it with more meaning. He says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. We want to baptize, we want to see people become Christians, but then we want to see them grow as well. We don't just want to be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word, obedient disciples of Jesus. And that means we need to know what Jesus says, but then also we want to do something about it. And honestly, it's going to take time. It's going to be a lifetime of learning what Jesus says, how that applies to you in every different situation to, to cultivate the habits and the desires, the convictions, the practices, the rhythms that will align you to him. See, being a dis, becoming a disciple is a moment. But being a disciple is a lifelong project that you never graduate from. You'll see slow and steady progress for the rest of your days on earth. And that's okay. Because discipleship is the lifelong project 
of cultivating people who trust and obey and love and are becoming like Jesus. So someone comes to faith and they get baptized and they start walking with Jesus and then they keep working with Jesus. They learn some more and eventually they share what they're learning with someone else who hears it and believes it, gets baptized, grows, learns some more, shares it with someone else, and on and on it goes, right? Disciple making disciples, you, you get it. The obvious question is, how are you being discipled and who are you discipling? In that cycle of discipleship, of, of being with people who trust and love Jesus and helping other people become more like him, how are you being discipled and who are you discipling? Let me ask a more specific diagnostic question for you. When do you open the Bible with others? I'm not saying it's the only way to do discipleship. Of course, things like prayer and care are significant as well. Just to give you a starting point as a diagnostic question, what are the moments in your week where you open the Bible with others? You probably got church on a Sunday. You might be part of a midweek small group. Yet in the CU stuff like prayer triplets and TNTs, maybe it's a cafe with a friend where you read a chapter together each week. Maybe it's a call to share a verse. Maybe it's walk-up evangelism. Maybe it's trying to talk to that guy or girl you've been in class with for weeks and let them know what you really believe. But if you were to tell them up, what are the moments in your week where you are being discipled and making disciples? As you think about that list, a little while ago, I, I put this question to the church that I work at. I work at a church in the city called City on a Hill. It's not actually on a hill. People ask that all the time. It's from the Bible, Matthew 5. Great chapter. I worked there. A little while ago, I asked them this question, where are you being discipled? Who are you discipling? And then, and then I put a challenge to them. I said, what would it look like this year to add one more moment? One more discipleship moment. I'm not going to give you that challenge. I'm going to give you a different one. What are the moments each week where you're being discipled and making disciples? And what would it look like for you to add five? Five more moments. Five more non-Christian friends. Five more Moments with the Bible open face-to-face with another person. And the reason the number's bigger for you is because this is the best chance you will ever get to be discipled and make disciples. You're living it right now. You have more freedom, more opportunity, more energy, more time than you are ever likely to have again to do this. And I know that because I work full-time at a church and it's still true for me that my uni days were the best chance I ever had. My job title is literally Discipleship Minister. And I had more opportunity and more time to be Bible open face-to-face with another person as a uni student than I do right now.
God's given you the most incredible gift. Don't you dare waste it. Of course, discipleship won't stop when you leave uni, you enter the workplace, you get a job, some of you will enter ministry, and for all of us, guess what? The Great Commission still applies. We don't just turn it off when we graduate, but, but you're probably never going to have more time than you do now. It's not going to get easier if you're at a job or, or a, a marriage or a family or, or whatever responsibility God has for you in the future. God's giving you an incredible gift right now. Use it. People need to know the king who loves them better than they could ever love themselves and he's sent you. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Finish with our last heading, the promise. You probably guess where this is going as Jesus sends out his followers. He sends them with a promise right at the end there. Verse 19, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What a promise. He's with us. I reckon that promise unlocks two things for us. The first one is it unlocks a deep comfort. There's something really comforting in the fact that as we go, he goes too. Because we can admit evangelism's hard. Walk up never gets not scary. Rejection sucks, but it's a reality. So how comforting to know that we never do that alone. As we go, Jesus isn't just for us, he's with us. But if I might state the obvious, I think this also unlocks something else for us. The promise of Jesus' presence means that the Great Commission is possible. Just take a deep breath, think about how staggering that is, that, that it might actually work. That's wild. Our vision is that everyone might know a disciple-making disciple of Christ for the glory of God. Might actually happen. You might finish that vision and need a new one. Let me suggest that everyone who knows a disciple becomes a disciple. That could be a good next step. But if Jesus really is with us, and, and if all authority really does belong to him, we could see Monash come to Christ. The Bible says that there is great celebration in heaven over just one person who gives their life to Jesus, and we want to celebrate it every time. But it really is possible that your whole campus could become disciples of Jesus. Do you believe that? You've got a swimming pool on campus, right? 
baptisms are sorted. <laughs> I'm not saying that it will happen. I'm not even saying that I think it's likely to happen. But friends, we must believe, we must believe that it could happen. Because if we don't, I think we've got a belief problem. Maybe we don't really believe that all authority belongs to Jesus. But God says it does. Maybe, maybe we don't really believe that he has sent us. But the Bible says he has. Maybe we don't really believe that he's with us when we go, but Jesus says he is. So if we're going to read the Great Commission and believe it, we have to think that this could happen. When Stu called me and asked me to speak, he gave me the brief that this was to be a motivational talk fire up the troops for the mission on campus. So here's my best shot at a motivational question for you. You ready? Why not? A whole Monash that knows Jesus. Why not? That every single student on your campus might know a disciple-making disciple. Why not? Why not you? Why not here? Why not now? Let's pray. God, we do believe. Please help us with our unbelief. We thank you that Jesus has humbled himself even to death on a cross. In doing so, he has loved us, he has served us, he's saved us. So God, we ask that with all the authority that is yours, would you please use us? I pray for these brothers and sisters, use them to see Monash students become Christians. Please work in our hearts that we might believe it's possible and joyfully, courageously, boldly go and do something about it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry, and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.